As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Every time you want something, having to spend money, I mean, that's kind of like an old school idea, right? The future is you just <laughs> pay one thing and then you just have yeah. total freedom to consume what you want. Welcome to today's episode of Danny in the Valley. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. We've got a great show today. My guest is Trip Adler, who is all of 33 years old, and he's the founder of Scribd, which is S-C-R-I-B-D. So if you spend any appreciable amount of time on the internet, you've probably come across the company, which really has a fascinating story uh, behind it. So it's 10 years old, which in startup years means it's basically a senior citizen. And it's gone through lots of permutations. It started out as a very basic website that just allowed people to publish and share documents. But now, after many pivots, Adler thinks he's finally hit upon the business model that's really going to make it fly. So the big idea is to become the Netflix of reading. So it's a subscription service. It costs like nine bucks a month, so cost of two or three beers depending on where you're drinking and for that you get access to millions of books a bunch of magazines and as of a few months ago articles from newspapers like the new york times and wall street journal so it's kind of like a library and a newsstand all in one and it's really an illuminating conversation about the potential future of journalism and more broadly this future of ownership or rather the end of ownership because if you think about it, I mean, when's the last time you actually bought music or rented a film? So more and more people are streaming, and that's basically the same idea here. Perhaps in the future we'll all just have a handful of subscriptions to services and we won't buy stuff anymore. But I will let Trip explain, so without further ado, here he is. You're going to save journalism? Is that what's happening? I hope so, because we're in a bad place right now. Well, I think we're trying to do what we, we can for journalism. We, we think we have an opportunity to, to really increase the audience of people who are, who are paying for, for journalism and paying for written content. And if we can do that, that'll bring a lot more money to, to journalists. So uh, really the history of the company is we started in 2007 as a simple way to publish and share and embed written content. You know, people publish school papers and uh, self-published books and court filings, that kind of stuff. And the free part of our service reaches about... 100 million monthly users. We've had about 100 million pieces of content uploaded. And along the way, we launched a subscription on top of that as the business model in a way for our non-paying users to get access to premium content and the same kind of experience. So in 2013, we launched the world's first subscription service for books where you can pay $9 a month and then read all the books you like on whatever device you like. So like a Spotify for books. 
Spotify, Netflix for books. Yeah, I mean, that, right. the low monthly price subscription for media has become a really common model, and, and no one had yet done that for books. And we, we did it for books, and then we've, we've added other kinds of content. We've added audiobooks, we've added magazines, we've added newspapers, and, and we see it more broadly as a, as a subscription for, for reading, not just books. Right, so that's the idea. It's about becoming this destination for reading online, effectively. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we, the way we see it is that the lines behind, between these different types of written content are blurring, right? I mean, the, historically, the difference between a book and a magazine and newspaper is really the types of printers that, met, that made them. And now that it's all digital, like, these lines are going to blur. So we're putting all this content together in one experience and, and cross-promoting it. And in particular, we organize around interests. So you can go to one particular thing you're interested in. Like, let's say you want to learn about global warming. We'll have a page for that and show you all the, the books, the magazines, the articles, the documents, all in that particular topic of interest but it's not like breaking news we have some breaking news but that's not the focus right i mean we're more focused on going deep on a on a particular topic we're about long form reading right i mean there's there's already so many services out there for for breaking news and that's what a lot of these social networks have really even become we're we're focused on longer form reading if you actually want to go deep on a topic or go deep on a particular piece of content that's really what we're we're working on and it's nine bucks a month Eight nine nine, yeah. Yeah, you've recently done a bunch of deals with the kind of the big newspapers. Is that right? Yeah, that was our last our last big announcement. We partnered with the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and we've basically added their content to our subscription. And you know, we think that the subscription model is a really great way to monetize everything, but in particular journalism. Right? I mean. A lot of these news organizations have learned that themselves, and that's why they all have have paywalls, and they're actually doing quite well. I mean, you mentioned that we need to save journalism. I, I think actually the subscription online subscription model is actually a great model for these newspapers, and it's really working well for, for all of them. But we think there's an even bigger opportunity in aggregating them because a lot of people are not willing to buy five different subscriptions for five different newspapers. But if you can just have one low monthly price and get all your newspapers for one subscription, that is something that people, a lot of people want to pay for. And if we can really increase the number of people who are paying for news, that, that's just a, a much larger pool of revenue to be passed back to journalists. And how do you determine what goes on, what is on script? When it comes to news, we have an editorial team that, that selects So do they, they have free, free reign, effectively, to pick and choose what they want to put on? Every deal is a little bit different. It's yeah, it's not it's not everything. I mean, we haven't replicated the entire entirety of all these newspapers on script. It's right now select articles, but you know we're just getting started, and um, we have a, a great selection, and it's going to be growing over time. How has your the reception to this model developed or changed since you first launched it? Especially when, if you're t- again talking about news media in particular, a lot of them seem to be searching desperately for a model that works. And I'd be interested to, if, if you have had an experience of, I don't know if they first said, you know, no thanks, and now they're saying, yes, please come in, or if that has changed at all. We find the more that, that we, we do this, the better the reception gets. As long as our subscriber base keeps growing and we keep writing bigger checks to publishers, the more they see the opportunity and the more they see this coming together. So every quarter, every six months, every year, we, we talk to publishers of all kinds, and they're just more open to making more content available and new business models. Do you see this going the way of streaming music or movies or what have you in that People are buying records less. They're buying access to music more broadly. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the model of the future, right? In the in the past, first people would buy the physical goods, whether that's a CD or a DVD or a book or a newspaper. And then when it went digital, the the kind of was a similar model, but it was the digital version where people would actually buy individual pieces of content and then download them to their device. The model of the future is you just pay a small monthly access fee and you get access to the entire library, whether it's the entire library of videos on a service like Netflix or the entire library of music on a service like Spotify or it's the entire library of books and magazines and newspapers um, the way we do it on Scribd. But I think that's that's definitely the the model of the, the future. It's just, it's much more consumer friendly. People like the experience. People are willing to pay for that experience. And then if people pay for it, there's more money to be returned to the content creators. How have you kind of got the word out? My experience of Scribd as a journalist, like I said, it's always been a bit on the kind of, on the research side, I'll find some court documents that happen to be on the platform. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not a brand that a lot of people know. Have you been doing a lot of marketing or how do you kind of get the word out or kind of change that image so many people know us as a as a free document sharing service i think we have more work to do in in branding it as a premium content subscription service but we've actually been able to grow really nicely just off of the current non-paying user base right i mean we have 100 million people a month coming to the service and just by promoting the premium service to them we're able to get a small fraction of them to sign up every month which is actually a lot of subscription signups so so our growth numbers have been have been pretty good even though i i do agree we need to do some more work in establishing this new brand as a premium content service so you have 100 million people who access it for 100 you. million per month come to the site yeah and how many people pay for it we recently announced we hit 500,000 paying subscribers so less than one percent does that work economically i mean are you making money yeah, I mean, we've, we've been profitable for, for over a year. That percentage of paying subscribers is growing, is growing pretty quickly. So I think over time, we'll see the percentage of subscribers will be much larger. So in 2013, is that, that's when you started the paid subscriptions? Yeah, we were, we were doing a little bit of tests with a freemium model before then, but that was when we really kind of jumped in with, with two feet, yeah. I'd be interested just to get the kind of arc of the company. So you've been at this since 2007, and you just started making money last year. You know, the arc of the company is much more indirect than that. We were, we actually were profitable in 2000, 2012, I think. We were profitable for, for a year. The problem was that the, the revenue growth rate wasn't that good. And that was when we had this idea, well, let's take all this money and go do deals with the book publishers so that we can add their content to the service. So we were basically taking this profit we were making and then reinvesting that in content to get our top to get to basically to do deals with to get access to libraries effectively. Yeah, exactly. And it is taking all this profit and giving it back to authors and publishers and, and content creators, right? I mean, we want to get that cycle going where we we are able to monetize content through the subscription model and then give that money to authors and publishers that contribute their content. And that then gets the subscriber base growing even more and we get that flywheel going. But that's kind of the SoundCloud model a bit, isn't it? Which has been difficult. Well, I mean, that's a, a lot of these like content ecosystems work. SoundCloud, I, yeah. I I don't know how things went for them. I mean, we, we are similar to SoundCloud in that we both have, you know, started with a large free audience with people publishing and embedding content. And then we both launched subscription services. Uh, I'm really not sure how theirs has gone, but it's worked. It's worked actually really well for us. We've had a lot of twists and turns as a company. It's been a pretty smooth transition to getting getting a subscriber base going. How were you making a profit in 2012? What was that money coming from? 
we had ads in the service and we had a freemium service. I mean, that was really what inspired this book subscription idea was we already had a premium service that was bringing in a lot of revenue. And then we thought, okay, well, we can we can scale this. Let's Rather than just having a premium service for user-generated content, let's go get best-selling books and put them in the service. And that's how we can really scale the subscriber base. And then that took us pretty quickly into into a non-profitable zone and then we got we got unprofitable for a couple of years as we were kind of growing that service out and then we got it profitable again so the company kind of keeps going in and out of profitability depending right, on whether we're right. focused on growing top line or focused on optimizing margins trying to do it effectively ebooks like in a library of ebooks when you have things like the kindle and amazon out there that must have been a pretty or difficult market no i mean in some ways I mean, what we did was was really differentiated i mean since then Amazon launched Kindle Unlimited. There's some other startups doing similar things, but we were really the first company to do books in a subscription. So it was a pretty radical idea at the time. And when we launched this, this idea that you can just pay a subscription fee and then have just a million books at your, your fingertips was a, I mean, I think it still is a really, really new idea. But at the time, I mean, that was a, that was a big leap forward. We got a lot of attention for having something so differentiated when we did this. And at the same time, I think the publishers really liked it because, I mean, the publishers want multiple channels out there. And Amazon's gotten so powerful that they like the idea of there being other channels. And we, we had a really unique and differentiated channel. So we had a lot of support from the publishers. And I think we had a lot of adoption from consumers. When Napster happened almost 18, 19 years ago, mm-hmm. that started the cycle for the music business. And only in the last, this is the second year that actually profits will be going back up. Mm-hmm. So after almost two decades of decline, mm-hmm. do you have any sense of how that arc looks for whether it's book publishing or for news media before we start getting these new subscription models that will actually turn things around? Well, I think in these subscription services are working really well for music, right? I mean, they've really increased the amount of people paying for, for music. I mean, compared to the Napster days, there's a lot of people who are now paying a monthly fee for music, which is, it's really been a great thing for the music industry. And I think that as subscription models get bigger, well, these aggregated subscription models get bigger for books and magazines and news, I think you'll see the same thing. You'll just see a, a larger market and more money going back to publishers and authors and journalists. The, the difference between books and music is, is books made the transition more gracefully. I think um, they actually learned a lot from watching the music companies. I mean, piracy never became a big issue in the book space like it did for music. So I think the transition's actually from print to a la carte digital to subscription digital has actually been a pretty smooth transition. For newspapers, I think there's been a little bit more ups and downs, similar to um, I can attest, what's, hap- yes, what's happened in music. <laughs> yeah, it's been similar, but I think that the newspapers are getting this subscription model dialed in. You look at like the stock prices of these companies, like the New York Times, I mean, it's, it's way up in the last year or so. Their subscriber numbers are going really fast, so the model's working, and I think you'll see more news sites going subscription and you'll see more of these newspapers participating in models like what we're doing and that's just going to grow the market overall. Yeah. Is there generally a split between what, you know, how these the subscription models work? We'll say, I know you've done like FT, Wall Street Journal, etc. Mm-hmm. Is it like, you know, you get 70, they get 30 or how does it work? So at this point, we have a ton of different deals in place. It works a little bit differently with every newspaper, with every magazine, with every book publisher. So it's it's really hard to describe one model. I mean, it, I wish we just had one simple model everyone participates in, but it turns out every company we talk to has very different needs and a different way of looking at the world. So we've basically combined a lot of different models together. I mean, from a consumer's perspective, it's just pay once and read everything. But, but on the back end, there's a lot of 
fancy business models. And do you have a sense of who your customers are, who your paying customers are in terms of age or demographics? I mean, is this a, if you're a millennial, are you more or less likely to be paying nine bucks a month to actually get access to all of this stuff? Yeah. So it's, uh, we tend to, our, our subscribers tend to cluster around the like 25 to 45 age range. So I guess that's, that's millennial, I guess. Um, it tends to be a more educated type person who's a professional, probably um, works in a job that requires them to sort of read and learn and access all this information. That said, it's a pretty it's a pretty broad group, right? I mean, we start with this funnel of 100 million monthly users. We do have a lot of students. We have a lot of fiction readers. I mean, we have, we have it's a pretty it's a pretty broad audience. But in general, we we target this educated professional type, as we call it. Right. Because this is effectively, depending on how it goes, it's kind of this is you could be the replacement for the public library as well. Yeah, I don't know about replacements the right word, but we're like, you know, we kind of are in that world of the the library world. Can we go back to the beginning, 2007? You were at Harvard, is that right? Yeah, I finished Harvard in 2006. I read, I think that you were were there around the same time as Zuckerberg? We were the same year, yeah. He he left our sophomore year, and then I, I finished. But and when yes. you saw him leave, were you, what were you doing at the time? Were you trying to already come up with an idea? I remember them leaving. Um, I remember talking to Dustin when they were on the way out, and he was like, oh, we're going out to, to California to make Facebook big. I literally at the time thought of trying to join them because I, I knew it was going to be a big deal, but I, I decided that it would be – I wanted to start my own thing. I think um, – It was the, the Facebook then, right? The Facebook, yeah. I mean, really interesting, but I um, – And were, you, all, were you on it back then? Yeah, yeah. I was um, – my user ID is like I think around 3,000. I was saying, that's kind of late at, at Harvard. Uh, I mean, my, my roommate at the time, his user ID is 17. Oh, uh, wow. But he was actually, I think, the number f- the fourth person to join. Mark created and he emailed like 10 friends, and he was on that initial list. So I feel kind of bad being 3,000. It was kind of late. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, was, uh, it was a really interesting time to watch that. And I think like, uh, I learned a lot from, from watching that grow and scale, and I think that was really ins- inspiring and gave me some confidence to start my own company. So how did this thing start? My co-founder and I, Jared, we went to Y Combinator. Which itself was starting at the time, isn't that right? Yeah, so we were the second class. It wasn't a big deal back then. There was what, only, what was Y Combinator back then? It's the same thing as today, but, but rather than doing a few hundred companies per batch, they did about 10. Yeah, I mean, just the, the, the interest and attention wasn't the same. Nowadays, like if you do Y Combinator, it seems like every single company coming out of that is instantly worth like $15 million. Yeah. Um, we did it. Most companies couldn't raise any money. And if you were like a really hot company, you'd get like a $2 million valuation. So it was just, it was just very different. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like the hot thing to do like it is, it is now. Right. So um, how, what happened when you came out of Y Combinator? Were you a, were you a hot startup? So we, when we came out of it, we were actually working on a different idea. We spent about a year trying a bunch of different ideas before laying on script. So the initial idea, I, yeah, I don't think we raised, yeah, I don't think anyone wanted to invest. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think that's what happened. I'm trying what, to remember. what was the idea? We had pretty much already given up on that idea pretty quick. The idea we worked on at Y Combinator was called WhoList. It was basically Craigslist for, for colleges, and we started at Harvard. What was um, it called? Called WhoList, H-U-List. H-U list. Yeah. Okay. Paul, Paul right. Graham named it. Uh, we couldn't think of a name. Right. So Paul Graham just said, call it Who List. We launched that at Harvard and we got like a few hundred people using it. I think some like couches were bought and sold on it, but it just, it wasn't, it wasn't really scaling from school to school. Right. And I just think we, we weren't really that into it. So we tried a bunch of different ideas and um, eventually landed on Scribd and then that, you know, took off and became a thing. How do you eventually land on Scribd though? Yeah. So we did, um, we did Who List. We thoroughly explored doing a, 
a ride sharing service. Really? Yeah, we were. It was. It was. We. We was gonna be like exactly what Uber and Lyft are, but we were just way ahead of the time because like the iPhone wasn't even out yet at the time. You know, we explored a. a when whole, you say explore, were you thinking about, it or did you actually build a, an app? For, well, I don't know. We didn't build anything for that one. Yeah. For some stuff, we built stuff, and yeah. then for some stuff, we just planned it. I think for for the ride sharing one, we just built like a whole uh, business plan type of thing. Um, wow. Actually, I, I still have that on my computer. I should like publish that. On, you on should. On Scribd. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a five page PDF uh, plan right. for a ride-sharing service. We tried a bunch of things, and then and then the way Scribd came about was talking to my dad, who was a doctor at Stanford, and he had a medical paper he wanted to publish, and he was frustrated with how slow the medical publishing process was. And then my co-founder and I, we realized, well, we can just build a site, let him take this paper and put it on the web. We built Scribd, and mostly my co-founder, Jared, just built it in three months, and we, we launched it. It was very, very basic. It would just let you take a document, put it on the web, and um, it, it pretty much just took as like off. A, as like a PDF. So actually, uh, we used this Adobe product at the time called Flash Paper. So we were embedding it using Flash. Eventually, we switched over to our own Flash player, and then we switched over to, to HTML5. But yeah, that took a few years to happen. The original product actually... The embeddable reader said Macromedia Flash Player on it. It wasn't even branded script. It was really just kind of hacked together. But at the time, that got a lot of traction. And um, we launched on TechCrunch. And we got a few thousand people came and uploaded content. That content then brought in a lot of traffic. That traffic brought in more uploaders. And then it got this growth cycle going. And it just grew really quickly from there. And now, now we're at 100 million monthly users. But it sounds like you were kind of in the, in the wilderness for a while in terms of a business model. Is that fair? In terms of business model, that would scale, yeah. So, so the first thing we did with, was ads, and uh, we made you know we made a few million dollars a year off ads. But but ads, it's not going to be like a big scalable model unless you're like Facebook or Google. And we just our traffic, 100 million is a lot of people, but it's not billions like those services have. So it, it wasn't ads just wasn't the right long term model. We tried allowing users to buy and sell content. That also made some money, but again, that's not interesting unless it's at huge scale, like how Amazon has it. And then the freemium model was working pretty well. We were able like, to foresee a path to scaling that. And it turns out, I think we were right, that is a pretty scalable model. I mean, you could see how well it's working for services like Netflix or Spotify or Amazon Prime. And I actually think that, that the subscription model is just really beginning. Netflix has around, like I think, 90 million subscribers. Yeah. I, mean, I could see that having hundreds of millions of subscribers. I mean, I think it, over the next five, 10 years, you're going to see some really, really large subscriber bases. So that seems to be the future is you just, everybody has a few subscriptions. Like, this is my reading subscription. This is my music. This is my movies. Yeah, I mean, or they could even be more bundled than that. I mean, I'm, I'm generally a believer that, that there'll be, yeah, fewer subscriptions that'll be bundled together. I don't think people want to manage dozens of One subscriptions. One mega subscription, like 50 bucks a month and you get everything. I mean, maybe. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah. I, if anything, though, I, I don't... I think the prices will stay low. I think that the bigger opportunity is to get hundreds of millions of people or even a billion people paying $10 a month or $9 a month. That's actually a bigger opportunity than getting a small number of people to pay $50 a month. A billion people paying 10 bucks a month for, for lack of a better word, for Netflix, Scribd, and Spotify altogether, for example. It's possible. I don't know. We'll see how it all plays yeah. out. But I think I think that the general trend will be like more people paying subscription fees and getting more and more stuff for that low price subscription fee. Because this whole idea of every time you want something, having to spend money, I mean, that's kind of like an old school idea, right? The future is you just <laughs> pay one thing and then you just have yeah. total freedom to consume what you want. And all of the, the economics behind that will be handled by the companies managing these subscriptions. Do you own any books? 
Yeah. I haven't really bought many physical books in a long time. Most of the physical books I have are books from a while ago or books yeah. that are gifted to me. Yeah, because I guess that's also this kind of shift, which is, will we be buying anything anymore in terms of media in the broadest sense? As kind of like a, a futurist, like I, yeah. I'm sort of the mindset that, yeah, you won't really buy anything and people won't own anything. And that's just kind of how the world will work. That, that said, I don't think it's like going to really work just like that. I mean, print books are not going away anytime soon. I mean, I don't think the world's going to change that fast. Yeah, right? transition's um, always a bit slower and a bit more up and down than people think. And, you know, print books seem to have a lot of staying power. You know, a lot of people thought they were going to disappear like CDs, but they're still a really big, I think they're still actually the majority of the market. It's still, it's still a big thing. So I don't really see print books going away anytime soon. Yeah. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And just going back to um, the companies travels toward a business plan. Mm-hmm. When did you first raise outside money? We had raised about 40 grand before we launched. And then after we launched- 40 we had, grand? Yeah. Did that, that get you very far? When we did Y Combinator, we got 12 grand. That was, that 12. was what we used to get started. Yeah. <laughs> what does that get you 10 years ago? Uh, just pay your rent, basically. Yeah. 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 I mean, that was, the, <laughs> that, was, that was how it worked back then, right? This whole thing that YC companies now get like 150 grand, that, that happened a few years later. That was like a big deal. Now they all get like a million or two to get started. But, but yeah, we had $12,000. <laughs> and it was more expensive to start a company back then. It was harder, right? I mean, because you didn't have Amazon Web Services. You didn't have WeWork. I mean, it was just, it seemed like it was yeah, harder well, to Well, now come. you have ICOs. So you just like, well, launch exactly. your ICO and you get 200 million instantly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just as well, the last write your white paper and you're trained. good. Yeah, so we raised 12,000. And then, um, I mean, I actually, I wanted to launch the service off 12,000. That was all we needed, I thought. But my co-founder, Jared, really wanted to have more money. I guess he was more conservative than me and thought we needed more in the bank. So we got, we got the former CFO of Ariba to give us $40,000. And then we launched the service. We ended up not really spending any of that 40000 We were still living off the 12000 And then pretty... Were you, were you living at home? We worked out of our dorm at Harvard and then my parents' house in Stanford and then... That building, that was the Y Scrapper, right? That's where all the Y Combinator companies. The Y Scrapper. Are you familiar with that? No. We got started. Where Dropbox got started. Where Weebly got started. Where Twitch TV got started. Right. So it's a pretty historic building, actually. Wow. And then we moved right over, right over there, and then, and then to Soma, and then to here. Forty grand, and no one, you couldn't attract actually venture capitalists. They just yeah. So, so it was, it was a really interesting learning experience for me because 
we really couldn't get venture capitalists. You know, we had some Silicon Valley contacts send our our site and our presentation to a lot of the top VCs, and and no one would would take a meeting. But then we launched the service. We had a lot of traction, and within like two weeks, we had all the VC firms were calling us up trying to invest. So so my phone was just like ringing all day long with VCs trying to get meetings with us. So like really everything just flipped in in like a few weeks time. Once you had something to show. Once you had something to show, yeah. And then we ended up raising three and a half million at. At the time, at a seventeen and a half million valuation, which when, was, when was very this? high at the time, two thousand seven. Seventeen yeah. and a half million back in the day. That's that's great. Yeah, that was like one of the highest kind of Series A valuations like anyone had heard of at so the time. So did you think at that point, like, yeah, I'll be Mark Zuckerberg. We're going to be <laughs> running things. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I I don't I don't know what I thought. Uh, I Must mean, have been I was quite just excited, kind of overwhelmed though. with the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Kind of overwhelming because I mean we were just just out of college and suddenly had millions of dollars and we're hiring people, getting an office, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was really exciting. Yeah, I mean when I look back on it, I, f- I feel like we just made lots of mistakes. That's when, I, when yeah. I think about it now, I just think about all the mistakes we made. Yeah, uh, we could have we could have made things go more smoothly. But you must have had some. Actually, no, I think I think we did things pretty well. Actually, when I look look back on it, like <laughs> like I mean, if I if I could do it over, knowing what I know now, we would have done things like really really well. But I think like given the circumstances, I think we actually managed it pretty well because you know we were able to raise the money to to grow our audience. We ended up raising our Series B right in the middle of the 2008 financial crisis at oh, a, wow. as an up round. So that, that was, you know, pretty good that we were able to keep, keep the momentum and keep growing the company. So, so I think overall, I mean, for being just out of college with no work experience, I think we did pretty well. So who put in the first money? Uh, Redpoint. Redpoint. The first millions of dollars. Right. Yeah. And your other backers, they must be very patient, no? Because, I mean, it sounds like you've been at this for 10 years. And mm-hmm. you've gone through various different iterations and various different business models and approaches. Mm-hmm. How big is that pressure to actually kind of quote unquote figure it out? Yeah, they, they are they are patient to their to their credit, and I think all of our investors are pretty are pretty patient. I think I mean part of that is that they've all had plenty of success, other successful exits. So there's no, it's not like they need a return to keep their the lights on. And also, I think they're all very just long term focused. I think they all see a really big long term opportunity, and they're they're in this for that long term opportunity. I think yeah, in my experience the venture industry in Silicon Valley is a pretty long-term focused group of people. I haven't really seen any of them be too short-term right. focused in, in my experience. So, uh, so yeah, I think we're lucky to have some patient long-term focused investors. How much have you raised now? About 50, 50, 50 million. And what is the company worth today? I don't think we've publicly revealed the valuation. I saw, I think you could find it online. Yeah. Somewhere. I found something. It's like 160 million ish sounds in the it, right uh, in the right was, uh, ballparkish yeah but we haven't raised we raised two and a half years ago so right. we've made a lot of progress since then so there hasn't been any recent valuation on the company so yeah i'm, I'm not sure what we would get right now if right. we went out and raise but i mean we've been we've been pretty profitable we i think our biggest challenge right now is is how to reinvest our profits to create more more growth um, so you know we're not planning on raising any any more anytime soon do you have any um because i think you have done a deal with the guardian as well is that right uh yeah all of their stuff is free anyway. A lot of news organizations give away their stuff for free. Mm-hmm. So what's where's the incentive to do something with you there? We're mostly focused on aggregating the content that's either only available in the print magazine or newspaper or behind paywalls. That said, we do have some free content. I mean, for us, the 
newspaper and magazine content is largely there for uh, for just engagement purposes, right? I mean, we already have people who are paying to or subscribing to read the premium books and to read the the other premium content. So so adding a little bit of free content if it if it fits in the experience and it creates engagement for our our users, we consider that to be right. a good fit. And so, do you see other just in your conversations with other media organizations? Do you see more and more of them? Because again, looking at newspapers in particular, there's been a lot of different attempts to try to figure out how to make money in this new world. Facebook are just, and Google have taken all this money. These new news organizations are struggling to figure out a model that works. Do you see more and more of them actually going back to the, just the very simple to paywall? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's been this big debate about how, how to monetize journalism for the last 10 plus years. And I think like the answer is actually pretty clear. It's just having a paywall, right? Um, having just a simple paywall where you pay a monthly fee and then you can, can read everything. And, and I think in particular, in my opinion, like the trick is to keep the price, the price low, like a, a nice monthly price point that gets a lot of people in is, is part of the key. And then also to have a lot of stuff available for that low monthly price, right? And that's how you really increase the audience people of people paying. Yeah, I think, I think the newspapers are embracing this model. And I think if they they embrace this model more. I, I'm pretty optimistic about the future of the industry. I think there's plenty of revenue there in the future. I'm just thinking, nine bucks a month is is ch- cheaper or kind of on par with a single any kind of single subscription to a paper or a magazine or, or what have you. Is that yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a really good deal, right? I mean, I, I mean, if you were to add the total value of all the books and and newspapers and magazines we have, I mean, it's a it's a huge amount of value for for a really low monthly fee. And how curated is it? If I say I sign up for Scribd, mm-hmm. do I have to kind of fill out a whole profile and then I'm fed? You know, like um, on Spotify, they do this thing, Discover Weekly, this kind of computer generated playlist based on things that I listen to. Do you have something similar? We have both an editorial team that picks and features the, the best books and articles in our service. And then we also uh, have algorithmic recommendations. So when you sign up, there's a personalization flow. You can indicate what your, your interests are. That'll personalize your experience based on what you like. And then the more you use the service, the more we'll recommend related content. So it's very personalized for you. So if you like reading biographies on historical entrepreneurs, you'll the, your homepage will be kind of customized, give you a lot of that. And if you like reading romance books, we'll give you a lot of romance books. Or if you like reading more news articles, uh, on politics will give you more of that, right? So like it's very much personalized uh, based on, on what you read and how you read. And the more you use it, the more personalized it gets. I mean, I know it's kind of early in the model, but there's a, a split where that it leaves enough for the publishers where this makes sense for them. Because obviously one of the other things that has been a concern is, again, Facebook, Google, et cetera. They'll say, okay, well, you can put it through our system, but we'll take so much of the pie that there's not left much for you. And there's been a lot of disgruntlement about mm-hmm. how that system works. Well, well I think um, with the Facebooks and the Googles of the world, they're driving a lot of traffic to these news sites, but they're not, they, they haven't made the, figure out the business model. And I think we're really focused on the business model. Well, they model. figured out the business model for them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 guess, I guess you could put it that way, yeah. Our whole, I mean, the, the initial, I mean, the, the whole mission of our subscription service since the beginning was this was going to be a way to make more money for authors and for publishers. And I mean, that's still what we're focused on. So like, we're really trying to send more money to these guys. And um, I mean, they've all agreed to terms with us and they all... They all seem to keep wanting to renew their terms and, and, and expand the relationship. So I think based on that, they seem to be pretty, pretty happy with how it's going. 
So you've got books, magazines, newspapers. Are there any other areas that are kind of next for you guys? Yeah, we have audiobooks. That's a big growing segment for us. We actually have a really big sheet music uh, sheet music music audience. Yeah, that just sort of took off organically, and we did deal with Hal Leonard. So sheet music is big. Well, I imagine if you, yeah, if you're a musician and you want sheet music to song X, we're we're just about the the world's best uh, subscription model for sheet music out there. So, wow. uh, so we have that. And then, yeah, there's, there's more on, on the way. There'll be more announcements coming soon. But you can't say what those will be. Uh, I can't say. <laughs> I, I, I can say we just actually, we did a really interesting deal with the New York Times recently. It's, it's focused on students because we do have a lot of students in our service. If you're a student, you can get Scribd and the New York Times together for just seven fifty a month. So, so in right. addition to offering books and magazines and newspapers and audiobooks, we, we now actually offer an actual subscription to the New York Times. And is this mostly American so far in terms of the, your publishers? And, uh, the, I Mo- mean, mostly the- American-based, but we have more and more international publishers, international growth. How many uh, magazines and newspapers do you have now? Uh, I think we're at 75. You know, we've only been at magazines and newspapers for about a year, so that's going to be growing a lot in the near future. But 75 is still, it's, it's a really, it's a good amount. We have a lot of the, the world's top brands in there. Right. So it's a, it's a good selection. The kind of, the conceit among, underlying all of this, of course, is that that's the future. One subscription for all of it. I mean, that's our, that's our vision. We'll see if that, that is the right vision, but we believe in it and, and the, the current usage numbers and data is indicating it's, it's the right way to go. And that's it. I am now back to the office. I'm actually just around the corner from Scribd, which means, of course, that I'm just a few short blocks from the Y scraper, which kind of sounds like a dorm with no parties and lots of coding. Uh, yikes. But anyhow, I do wish Trip luck. My future may depend on <laughs> may depend on it. And before I go, I do want to make the usual request. Take a moment and stop on Apple Podcasts. If you feel so inclined, do give a rating and review. It really does help. The rankings helps other people find the, find the show. So please take a moment to do that if you can. And of course, you can always find me where you can always find me in the newspaper at the Sunday Times, online at thetimes.co.uk and on Twitter at Danny Fortson. That is it. I will... As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Talk to you next week.